0: We saw a few weeks back from Exodus chapter 18 that we need to come before God with care and consecration. However, the context of that passage was the one time coming before God at the mountain at Mount Sinai. And so what we're seeing in these passages in Exodus 25 through 31 in these chapters is a laying out of the pattern for what it was to look like for the Israelites to dwell with God and for them to serve God, specifically in Aaron and his sons and those who would later serve as priests. What does it look like to come before God regularly? Who should do it? Where should this take place? In this passage, we're going to see that the answers to these questions were that they were to gather at the tabernacle, that they were to gather before God regularly, and that the ones who were to serve them were the sons of Aaron, Aaron and his sons, and their descendants after them of the tribe of Levi. We also see, I think, for ourselves today that God is not looking for passive observers in worship. But as we look at these patterns that he laid out for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, we're going to see that in the New Testament, God is looking for people who will prepare to serve him in holiness as he dwells among us. But there has to be this preparation. We're going to see in a few more weeks in Exodus uh, 35 through 40, the idea of them actually carrying out these instructions that God is giving them. But right now, God is laying out the instructions. There's this idea of preparation and getting ready for all the things that are going to take place. What does it look like to prepare for God to dwell among you? What is the point of it? Well, the first reason is so that, he might, so that you might know Him. And we saw that even at the end of the passage that was read this morning, but it starts even earlier in chapter 25, Exodus 25. Verse 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Then the verses that Mike just read I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so what we have here is a continuation of the story that started at the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? They're in Egypt, they're in slavery to the king of Egypt, and God is going to deliver them, but God's not delivering them just so they go on a trip, and God's not delivering them so that they go on a trip just so they get in the land, and then they do exactly in the land what they had done in Egypt. God is communicating to them that the point of all of this is that he would dwell among them, that he would be their God, that they would know that he was there with them. And one of the ways that God was going to accomplish this was by the building of a tabernacle, a place of worship to himself. Later we'll see in the Old Testament there's the temple, and then of course today there is no temple, there is no tabernacle. We'll look why that is in just a moment. They were to know him as he dwelt among them, and they were to know him as he revealed more about himself at the mercy seat. Chapter 25, verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And so we have all of these specific instructions. I don't want to dwell on all the specific instructions although I will plan to send you a diagram that we can look at tonight in our sermon discussion. But the point of these objects of furniture was to have a visible representation of God's presence and a place from which he would communicate further revelation about himself to the people through their appointed leader, Aaron and Moses. All of these things are anticipating a better dwelling of God, and a more perfect revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. God didn't set up the tabernacle so that the tabernacle would be the final thing. The tabernacle was a portable structure because the Israelites were traveling around. When they arrive in the land of Israel, now they have the temple. God builds the temple because they're in a permanent place. But in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of all these things. God dwelling with people, God himself making God known to his people. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John 17.1-3, Jesus spoke these things in His prayer to God the Father. Lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17:8. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And so in the Old Testament, you had Moses and Aaron speaking with God in this temporary structure in which God dwelt among his people. In the New Testament we have God Himself come down to dwell with His people without the external structure, right? Jesus is in a body of flesh, obviously, but He's not in a temple or a tabernacle. But God has come to dwell among men in the person of Jesus Christ, and He has made God known to people in Himself. And so these things that we see imperfect shadows and pictures and symbols of in the Old Testament, Jesus does perfectly in the New Testament. And so the question that we have then is, does God dwell with us? Do you know God? Because that in itself is the essence of eternal life. Sometimes people look at the idea of eternal life and they will say, well, it's being a better person or it's uh, doing religious acts or things like that. But the point of eternal life is not that I did something a long time ago, I prayed a prayer, I wrote something on a card, I said to people I'm a Christian, and then the rest of my life I just go and do everything else the way that I want to do it. The point of eternal life is to have an ongoing relationship with God, that we know Him personally, that He dwells with us as He dwelt with His people in the Old Testament. And so when we come to a passage like this, we might look at it and say this has nothing to do with me but if the whole point of god taking the israelites out of the land of egypt was so that he would dwell with them and be their god and that they would know that he was their god then we ought to ask ourselves is the same true true of us does god dwell with us do we know that he is our god do we believe and follow him as our god and this then leads us to the question how can he provide this eternal life this relationship because as we saw in previous chapters There's this separation between God and sinners, right? God is holy. People are sinful. How can they approach God? There had to be sacrifices, as we saw last week. And specifically, here, this image of the mercy seat ties in with the imagery in the New Testament of the idea of propitiation. We hear words like that in the New Testament. We say, what does that even mean? God is angry with sin. His wrath is poured out towards sin. There's this gap between sinners and God. Jesus bridges that gap, satisfies God's wrath, and meets with His people and continues to intercede for them. We see this in passages like 1 John 2, 1, 4, 10, and Romans 3, 24, and 25. If you know God, if you have eternal life, if He dwells with you, the natural outflow of that is that you will worship Him. So what did that look like? The goal for the Israelites, the goal for us today, is that we would worship God properly. For them, in the Old Testament, it was through very specific instructions. Exodus 25, verse 9, he says, According to all I will show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And then verse 40 here of chapter 25. See that you make them... After the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. And then again in chapter 26, verse 30, set up the tabernacle according to its plan which you have been shown in the mountain. And then in chapter 31, uh, verses 7 through 11, he talks about the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, the furniture of the tent, the table, its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, the labor and its stand, the woven garments and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of the sons with which to carry on their priesthood, the anointing oil also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. So God laid out a very specific set of instructions through Moses, according to which they were supposed to follow the pattern for making the things, setting them apart as holy to God, and actually using them in regular service for God. These items were made of various materials, and we might ask ourselves why. Some of them were made of gold, some of them were made of bronze, some of them were made of uh, goat's hair, some of them were made of wood. What was the point of all these different materials? I think that there is a mixture both of beauty and of functionality. So for example, why was there supposed to be a covering over the uh, tabernacle itself of goat's hair and of porpoise skins? For waterproofing purposes, right? They're traveling. There's not going to often rain, but occasionally you would need to protect what's inside from what is from dust storms and from the occasional rainstorm and all these sorts of things. And so those were very functional. They build the Ark of the Covenant and they build these other things and then they overlay them with gold. What's the point of that? It's the point of beauty and of holiness and of this is something that's special and set apart for God. The uh, utensils that they were going to use in connection with sacrifices, they were made of bronze. Why? Well, you can't use gold for things where you're going to have a very hot fire. Why? Because it's going to melt. And so they would use bronze. I mean, they didn't have things like stainless steel and all that sort of thing. So they would have used bronze altars and utensils and all these sorts of things in service to God so that they would last so they would accomplish the purpose that they were supposed to accomplish also in connection with the worship of God we see in Exodus chapter 29 verses 31 through 34 God is not just setting up a pattern for worship for himself but he is also providing a pattern of giving the priest what they needed to survive chapter uh, twenty-nine, thirty-one through 34 says you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the doorway of the tent of meeting thus shall they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration but a layman shall not eat them because they are holy if any of the flesh of ordination or any of the bread remains until morning you shall burn the remainder with fire it shall not be eaten because it is holy in this and in the other things that are laid out in more detail, we won't take the time to look at this morning. God was providing for these servants of His, right? Because the Levites were not going to have their own part of set plot of land in Canaan, in the land of Israel, to raise crops and all of these sorts of things. They survived on the offerings and the sacrifices that people gave. And God set aside a portion of those things, not just for His own service, but also for them to have what they needed for food, and for provision. This worshiping Him properly also involves certain things being set aside to God that could not be used generally by the people. Uh, We see this with regard to anointing oil and with regard to incense. In chapter 30, verses 31 through 33, He talks about the, the making of this oil for anointing. And he said you shall speak to the sons of Israel saying this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. And then he talks about making incense. Verses 37 and 38. The incense which you shall make you shall not make it in the same proportions for yourselves it shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. So there was this idea that there were certain things mixed in certain proportions that were set aside wholly for the service of God in the tabernacle and the people were not supposed to do something different. Uh, we'll see this later in the story of Korah. He offered strange incense, strange fire before God and God wipes him and all of his household out. Why? because he violated these instructions that God had established. The people were not supposed to take the things that were used for the temple or the tabernacle and use them for their own purposes, right? And these were supposed to be holy, set apart for God. The last example of this we see in Exodus 31, 12 through 17, that the people were supposed to follow the pattern of the Sabbath. I'm not going to go into that this week because we've talked about it in previous weeks, but this command, this idea is repeated for them uh, by God. As we come to the New Testament, we see the tabernacle, right? And it was supposed to be a place of worship according to very specific instructions. And one of the challenges that we have is bridging the gap from that time to this time. There was a tabernacle and later a temple. We have a church building. Is the church building the tabernacle or the temple today? It's not. So, we have this this, this tension, because I don't know if this was the case for you, but when I was little, there was sort of this sense you weren't supposed to run through the auditorium, right? And sometimes people would say something like, well, this is where we meet with God, so we shouldn't, you know, treat it like it's uh, a common place. So, let me ask you this question. Is the place where we meet with God holy because the specific building itself is holy, or because of God's presence in it? Think about in Exodus. Was that bush that was burning with fire holy because it was this bush in this place? Or was it holy because God's presence was there in it? Was the tabernacle a building that was holy in and of itself? Or was it holy because of God's presence in it? These are important questions for us to wrestle with because we can have an almost superstitious perspective on what we do in the church service, and the place where we meet, and all of these sorts of things. And we need to recognize what's changed from the Old Testament to the New, but also what maybe we've misunderstood about the Old Testament in terms of God and holiness and places and days and those sorts of things. Today, does God dwell in a building? No. No. Ephesians 2 and other passages like it have this imagery in which it describes that God dwells in and among his people. Which honestly was true in the Old Testament, but there was also this visible place where God would meet with them. Now we don't have one specific place that we have to go to where God will meet with us. We don't go to Jerusalem to meet with God. We can meet with God here. We can meet with God in our homes God can and is present with us in those places because we are God's people, because He dwells among us. But Paul points out in Acts 17, "...the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything." And so if we look at what happened in the Old Testament and we think God set up the tabernacle because He needed a spot to stay and God appointed priests because He needed people to do things for Him, we've missed the point. Because as Paul points out for us, God has never needed a place to go. He is everywhere. And God has never needed people to do things for Him. He is independent of them, and He is all-powerful. We might then take that to an extreme and say, it doesn't matter where we go or what we do or or whether we serve God because He doesn't need us and He doesn't care about that. That would be taking it too far. Why? Because the same principles from the Old Testament where God laid out very specific instructions, here's how to build it, here's how to set it up, here's what to make it from, we see in the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 14.40, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. God still cares about order instead of chaos in the context of worship, right? And so it's not a matter of God cared about those things then, and now he doesn't care what we, can do, what we do, and we can just do whatever we want. But there is a degree to which external symbols have been moved from being visible things on the outside to being more inward realities, which was God's goal all along, that the outside would match the inside and vice versa, but sometimes the Israelites got stuck on the outside things. So, uh, for example... They would talk about making fringes on their garments or would talk about uh, binding little portions of God's word on your forehead or on your hand, right? And there are people today, Orthodox Jews, who will still go through those outward rituals, but most of whom have no relationship with God. And the same could be true of us. We could look at these external rituals in the Old Testament and say, we're going to do the external rituals today which would be wrong on a number of levels. If we do the sacrifices, we ignore that Jesus sacrifices once and for all. If we do the outward garments of the priest, that's not our role. We're not the high priest. We don't have to put on all the things that are described for the garments of the priest in uh, chapter uh, 28 and 29 because Jesus is our high priest, so we don't have to put on all those things externally. But we still have certain attitudes and actions and ways that we're supposed to behave before God. We'll get more to that in a moment. 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul was concerned about how we lived and served God when he says something like, so that you may know how to conduct yourself properly in the household of God. So he gives Timothy instructions for how the church is supposed to work and function because he wanted things to be done properly and in an orderly fashion in a way that would honor God. But it was not primarily about the place that they met or all of the logistical details of a service, right? He was more concerned about how they lived in all of life. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And to further make the point that God does not need a temple to be God and to be served by His people, in the book of Revelation 21:22, as we looked at a few weeks ago, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so we move from the Old Testament where these external, visible representations of God and who He is to the very end of the record of Scripture in which there is no temple, God Himself is there. And there is no uh, priest where only one person comes before God, Jesus Christ is that high priest. And there are no divisions between laity and clergy and all of these sorts of things all of god's people come before him and serve him and worship him in holiness and that's what the ark of scripture the, the the story progression of scripture is getting at that's the ultimate goal so you need to prepare to come before god as he dwells in you but you need also prepare to serve god it was not enough for the people just to build the tabernacle right The tabernacle wasn't just, like I said, a a place for God to stay, and then the people went over here and did all their own sorts of things. God required a particular kind of service from his people. Particularly in the person of the high priest, this meant coming before him in memorial and in modesty. What do I mean by that? The things that God gave instructions for with regard to the high priest were supposed to be a reminder of what God was doing in and among his people. So in Exodus 28, most of these verses will be from chapter 28 if you want to turn there. Exodus 28, verses 4 through 5. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. Then a little bit later, in verse 12, we see that part of the construction of this was to take two stones that on which were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. Verse 12, Put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. We see this again in verse 29. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Then we come to verses 36 through 38. It talks about you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to to all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And then verses 42 through 43, You shall make for them linen breeches, clothing to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and his sons when they enter the tent of meeting, or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place, so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. So these things that were set apart for particularly the high priest and those who would serve closely alongside with him were designed for two purposes, for memorial and for modesty, right? For memorial... This idea of the stones with the names of the sons of Israel on them, on his shoulders, he's carrying uh, this, this, this record of them over his heart as he goes before the Lord. It is a memorial. It's a reminder both for him and for God of this relationship that God has with his people. And then that last part I just read, they were supposed to wear certain clothing for modesty for similar reasons to what we saw um, uh, in the explanation of the Ten Commandments. When you build an altar, don't make steps on it so that you're not walking up on it and exposing the shame of your nakedness before God. Or even earlier, tying back to Exodus chapter 3, where God is appearing to Moses in the burning bush and he says, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. Sometimes we look at things like this and we think that the things themselves were holy. But they served a particular function. They reminded the priest of the soberness of what he was doing, they reminded him of the specific task that he was carrying out, and they reminded him of the reality of his sin constantly. Every time he's getting dressed to go before God, it was a reminder both of his task and of his sin and of God's relationship with his people and all of these sorts of things. Do we see these same sorts of reminders for God's people today? And I think it's very important for us not to say... Well, the high priest had these things on his clothes, so I'm going to make a hat, and I'm going to put holy to the Lord on the hat, and I'm going to wear that hat. Or the names of the sons of Israel were written on these stones that were built into this clothing that he was wearing, so I'm going to write the names of somebody or other on something and wear it as part of my clothing. That would be to miss the point of what's going on here. But there are memorials and reminders built into the New Testament even as there were in the Old Testament. First Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember what Jesus has done as a memorial, right? We don't remember the names of the children of Israel as a memorial because that's not what God has called us to do. We remember Jesus and what he has done. And that's something that we do regularly as a reminder for ourselves. And with regard to this idea of holy to the Lord being engraved on this, this uh, piece of metal that's attached to the turban, the cap that the high priest is wearing, what does 1 Peter 1.16 say? It says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are to have an ongoing awareness that we are to be holy to the Lord because He has called us to be His people even as was the case in the Old Testament. And with regard to the question of modesty and coming before God, I'm sure you're familiar with these passages, but 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, we need to still observe these same kind of principles, which obviously encompasses a wide variety of clothing styles. We're not wearing robes as they were in the Old Testament. There has been a change in what people wear from generation to generation, right? And so people that try to tie these principles to a specific moment in history i think are missing the point of the principle right the question is not what was modest 50 or 100 years ago the question is what can we do to express modesty in our present day culture as we come before god because like the priest we ought not come before god in immodesty and in 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 irreverence the emphasis in the new testament is on primarily our, extern, our internal heart attitude but that does spill forth obviously then into what we do externally so for example first uh, peter three three through four says your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses this is for the women of the church but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of god and there have been people who have said no jewelry no uh, fancy clothes of any kind i don't think that this is the point of that passage the point is there should be a greater emphasis on internal character than external adornment not that there can never be any external adornment same thing in first timothy 2 i want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly not with braided hair golden pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness are there any instructions for men We come to them as we come to this next section, which is this idea of worshiping with all your being. And so we have this idea of coming before God in memorial and modesty. And after we come before God, what are we supposed to do? It's not just I show up and I'm a passive observer, but it is that we worship God with all of who we are. What did this look like in the Old Testament? There were specific acts of consecration. For example, Exodus 29, verse 4, as the priests are being set aside for God's service, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on the altar once a year with the blood of the sin offering of an atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And then again, this idea of coming before God, Exodus 30, 19 through 21, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in this bronze laver basin, uh, whichever you would want to call it. They shall wash with water as they enter the tent of meeting so they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord so that they shall wash their hands and their feet so they will not die. And it will be a perpetual statute for them for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. There were specific acts of consecration that were supposed to take place like we said when the people were preparing to meet god at mount sinai in exodus 18 the washing with water was not them having a bath so that they were clean it was not them washing their clothes so that their clothes were clean and didn't have any stains in them or anything like that it was a setting apart a sober moment of preparing to meet god and the priest had to go through this every time they went to serve god in the tabernacle they would wash their hands they would wash their feet with this basin that was there at the tabernacle, and then they would go in to serve God. They would offer the daily sacrifices, and then once a year the high priest would offer the sin sacrifice before God in this holy place and put this blood upon, upon the mercy seat in the most holy place of the tabernacle. What does that look like today? There's no tabernacle. There's no priesthood, right? Right? What does it look like for us today? In the New Testament, all of the Old Testament symbolism, external acts of consecration, of sacrifice, of service to God, we come to the New Testament and we see these things all being brought together. The the threads are being drawn together. For example, in Hebrews 7. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The high priest had rituals he had to keep going through, and every so many years it would be a new high priest. Why? Because the former high priest would die. And it would begin again, and he would serve God for a time, and then he would die. And there was this ongoing and daily and repeated ritual and sacrifice and succession. And with Jesus, all of that stops because he lives forever, so he never needs a replacement. He's perfect, so he never needs to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. In fact, he has offered a sacrifice once for all for the sins of the people that God would call to himself. And so, why don't we offer sacrifices today? Why don't we have a high priest today? Why don't we serve God in this way today? Because Jesus has become the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. The rituals and the sacrifices and the consecration and the service. And we might say, well, Jesus has done it all, so I'm good, I don't have to worry about anything, right? John 4.24, what does God call us to do? God calls us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. What did the woman at the well, what was her concern? Should we worship God in Samaria or in Jerusalem? What did Jesus say? He said, the Jews were right. You were supposed to worship God in Jerusalem, but the day is coming and now is when you will worship God not in this mountain or that mountain or this place or that place, but God's worshipers will worship Him wherever they are in spirit and in truth. Because as Paul said, God's not bound by a place. God can meet with us here just as easily as He can meet with us on the other side of the United States or in another country around the world because God is in all places and God will meet with His people and dwell in and among His people, not in a specific geographical location, but wherever we are. What about the idea of service? There were priests in the Old Testament and they went through these things day after day and year after year until they grew too old and they died. What about us? Do we serve God? We might look at all of what I've said and say, well, the sacrifices are done and the priesthood is done, so God doesn't want any more servants anymore. But think about a verse like Romans 12, 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Instead of you being a particular group of people from the nation of Israel, taking an external sacrifice and offering it on an altar as a picture of your worship to God and serving God in that way, Paul says in Romans 12, you serve God as the priest and as the sacrifice at the same time, your entire being devoted to the service of God. And if we think about what Jesus did, that's what he did too, right? Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. Right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our great high priest, appointed forever by the oath of God. And so in the same way, not to the same degree, but following the same pattern that Jesus serves God as both priest and sacrifice. You and I individually serve God constantly throughout our lives as priests, as ministers, servants of God, and as sacrifices devoted to God, consecrated to God, set apart for God's service. And so when we think about it in that way, all of the imagery of the Old Testament, I think, makes more sense and what we're supposed to do makes more sense and there's a continuity from what happened in the Old Testament that sometimes in our emphasizing Jesus as the final sacrifice and the fulfillment of the priesthood we've sort of kind of brushed under the rug right so why is it that God requires these things of you if the law has been fulfilled in Jesus and if the sacrifice has been completed by Jesus Then are we still required to obey God? Are we still expected to serve God? Yes. But not through these outward external rituals. We serve God as His people who have a relationship with Him, and we are moving past, hopefully in the New Testament, the need for these external rituals because the things that they pointed to have become reality. Let me give you an example. If we um, think about kids and uh, something like school uniforms, right? People have made the argument, kids have to wear school uniforms because then they'll act in a particular way, right? When we look at the Old Testament passages, there were these structures and rituals built into their daily life to be constant reminders of what was true about God and what they were to expect about what God was going to do in the future. We come here, and we don't have all of those external pictures and reminders and things built in in the same way. Obviously, I said there's the memorial of the Lord's table, but where we have one like that and baptism two, if you will, they had dozens, right? special days, regular sacrifices, ongoing rituals, every time they went into the tent of meeting, all of these sorts of things. Our goal should not to be go back, to go backward to here and say, I have to have these external things in order to be right and holy and serve God well. Our goal should be to come here and say, these things have been fulfilled in Christ and come to a recognition that I can serve God whether it's Sunday or Tuesday, that I can serve God whether I'm dressed in a particular way or whether I'm working in my backyard or at my job at work, regardless of the clothing I'm wearing, regardless of the day that it is, regardless of the place that I'm in, I am a servant of God at all times and in all places and every day and constantly. And so don't get hung up on the external ritual and picture and symbol and miss the point and the freedom and the reality that we're to be here and that we can serve God in all of these ways and in all of these places and at all of these times. And we'll talk more about this when we get to chapters 25 through 40. But for right now, the emphasis is on this idea of preparation. If you walk into the church service You didn't wash your hands and your feet before you walked into the church building like the priests did when they came to the tent of meeting. And you shouldn't have, because that's not for us today. But if you walk into the church service and there's no element of preparation, then we've gone too far from what this would show us, right? And so I've had conversations with some of you who will come and you'll sit down in the pew... Not in some sort of mystical way that you you feel closer to God because you sit quietly in the pew for a few minutes before the service, but it would do us all well to come in and to pause and to prepare our hearts and our minds to worship God. Is there anything wrong with having conversations with people? No. Should we have conversations with people? Absolutely. We have a responsibility to exercise our spiritual gifts and encourage those who are fellow church members in various ways but before we worship God before we come before God in prayer in singing in attention to God's word I think it would do us well to pause and to think about what it is that we are doing and to prepare our hearts to do it well because certainly we can do it at all times and in all places and in all of these scenarios but when we gather This is perhaps the closest parallel to what we see of what they experienced then. It is the closest parallel to what we anticipate doing in God's presence someday. And so I think it would be wise for us to pause, to prepare our hearts, to focus our thoughts, and to think about the fact that we are coming before our God. A God who has a relationship with us. A God who is holy. A God who has called us to be holy whom we can come before in these ways, worshiping with the entirety of who we are and looking to the day when He will truly and finally dwell among us and we will serve Him in perfect holiness. Let's pray. Lord, You've not called us to construct a tabernacle or set aside priests from among our number to serve You. But you have called us to prepare before we approach you. Lord, may these pictures from the Old Testament and their fulfillment in the New Testament be reminders for us of the work that you are doing on a most basic level. You desire that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we cannot separate love for you and service to you. And so Lord, help us never to draw a harsh line between those two realities, but may our love for you be connected with and flow into service for you, obedience to what you have called us to do, testifying of you to those that we encounter, uh, all of these things as we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ when we will be in your presence and serve you finally and perfectly without the restraints and the... uh, the complications of sin in our lives. Help us to look forward to that day and help us to serve you well until that day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.